It's Wednesday, November 24th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Biden is tapping the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to release 50 million barrels of oil in hopes that it will bring down the price of gas. This is an effort done in coordination with six other countries to bring down prices, which is a big contributor to inflation. The only snag is that it still may take some time before we see the effects, or if it works at all. Tim Pucco, energy policy reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for what to know. Next, the Bay Area and Los Angeles have been hit with a spat of flash mob-style robberies targeting luxury retail stores, jewelry stores, and even marijuana dispensaries. It underscores the huge challenge that law enforcement faces, and many people also point to Prop 47, which reduced some property crimes to misdemeanors. Rachel Swan, reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle, joins us for more. Finally, the Democratic Party is going through an identity crisis. Recent polls and focus groups of voters who supported President Biden are hard-pressed to know what they currently stand for. Even passing the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better plan in the House isn't fixing the issue, as voters don't feel Biden is getting it done. David Siders, national political reporter at Politico, joins us for how the Democratic brand is broken. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It will make a difference. It will take time, but before long, you should see the price of gas drop where you fill up your tank. And in the longer term, we will reduce our reliance on oil as we shift to clean energy. Joining us now is Tim Pucco, energy policy reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Tim. Thanks so much for having me. Well, the Biden administration said that they're going to be releasing 50 million barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. This is being done in coordination with five other countries to help bring gasoline prices down. It's been a big contributor to inflation. So, Tim, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing? Yes, the inflation part is key. As you've seen prices for all sorts of consumer goods go up, you've also seen President Biden's poll numbers and his public support go down. That has concerned a lot of people at the White House. And so for weeks, they've been trying to figure out what solutions are even available to them to address that. Energy prices, which have gone up a ton, oil has gone up 75% just in, in the past 52 weeks, have been central to these concerns out of the White House. They don't have a lot of options, quite frankly. You know, commodity markets are notoriously variable. There are a lot of things that affect them, and, and they can go in a lot of different ways. But this is basically what the administration has honed in on as one thing that they can do uh, that they're hoping will have a result. Put more oil on the markets and hope it results in lower prices. Now, we're releasing 50 million barrels. The other countries, we're looking at China, India, Japan, South Korea, and the UK. I guess together, they're going to be putting out 65 to 70 million barrels. So, you know, we're putting out the majority of it. That's right. One of the wrinkles here is that we don't exactly know what a lot of these other countries are going to do. India and the United Kingdom are the only two that have made formal announcements and combined, they're going to put about 6.5 million barrels of oil on the market. China has not said what it's going to do. But the U.S. is the leading you know, producer and consumer of oil in the world, both. So it gives it a large market share. It has an especially large reserve compared to what other strategic government reserves exist in the world. And as I mentioned, the political concerns for the Biden administration are very intense here. So they've been at the center of this effort. It's been some of Biden's top advisors who have been working diplomatic channels around the world to get other countries working with it to put all this oil out there. And like I said, there are a lot of uncertainties around whether it will have an effect. So the thinking is 
Well, one way you can at least try to make sure that it does have an effect on markets is get more countries to do it with you. But again, we'll see if it works. Now, tell me a little bit more about the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve, because it's pretty interesting. I didn't really know much about it. It consists of four underground salt caverns along the Texas and Louisiana coast. There's a ton of barrels of oil in there. And then how they tap that oil is also pretty interesting. Tell us about it. Well, there are about 600 million barrels of oil in the reserve right now. That's down from a peak of more than 700 million because our government philosophy on how to use this reserve has changed a lot over time. In the beginning, it was created by Congress or established by Congress in the 1970s as basically an emergency supply. That was right after the Arab oil embargo, and there was a lot of concern about the increasing reliance of the country on export. But as you and I'm sure your listeners know, there's been quite the increase in U.S. domestic oil production just over the past decade. And so as U.S. oil production has climbed, political leaders don't see the necessity to have such a large emergency reserve on hand. And a few times in recent years, the U.S. Congress has tapped it basically as a a piggy bank. Uh, This by far would be the largest effort to tap into that oil, but there have been seven sales just in about the past four years alone, as Congress has looked to pay for things like tax cuts and other major spending initiatives. So, you know, we've seen more pressure, and the Obama administration did it too, to try to use this oil to help U.S. consumers when political leaders are sensing a need for it, or just when they have other, uh, other issues they want to raise money for. But as you've been saying, right, will it actually work? That has yet to be seen. It's going to take some time to actually get that oil out. It could take as long as two weeks before it hits the market. So this is kind of uh, something that could work in the short term. In the long term, it might not be as good. But even still, as I mentioned, it could take about two weeks. They have to pump water down in the bottom of, uh, of the cylinders that they have there. It forces the oil upward. You know, all of this process is going to take some time. Well, there's even more process than that. I mean, what you're describing is actually the physical process of getting oil up out of the ground. That'll take a couple weeks. But it's going to be a couple weeks even before that, before the U.S. government has the sale. They have to do a bid process first. Buyers have to figure out if they're interested. And then even beyond, you know, now we're talking about pretty much a month-long process. Even beyond that, then it takes time for oil to get transported from place to place, for it to get processed into gasoline, and for that gasoline to reach consumers. So we're talking you know, many weeks, if not a couple months in all, before this oil starts to get out there. And that's been one of the concerns. Oil prices on the futures market have already started to come down in the past you know, four or five weeks. But even that does not necessarily mean an immediate benefit to consumers. There's that whole process of transport and refining that I mentioned. And so it's the consumers. That's the problem. It's, what, it's the consumers that matter to the Biden administration. You know, we're heading into the holiday travel season. It's one of the busiest travel seasons of the year. People are driving all over the place. And there are potential political ramifications if people can't afford to get where they want to go or if they're feeling like their pocketbooks are getting hit by rising costs and the president isn't doing anything about it. So even as oil prices have come down, the administration has been getting more aggressive. Not only have they done this release or announced that they're going to do this release today and in concert with all these other countries, but they have also announced that they're doing a Federal Trade Commission investigation into the oil industry itself. They want to know why falling oil prices haven't yet translated into falling gasoline prices. But a lot of analysts who are following the industry are saying, well, it's just a matter of time. These things take time. And so consumers should expect that, as you imply, it might still be weeks, if not a couple months, 
before they see lower prices at the pump, if at all. Tim Pucco, energy policy reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. These are crimes of opportunity, but they're very well organized. And there's just there's I have no empathy, no sympathy for these kind of criminal gangs and elements. And they need to be held to account. Joining us now is Rachel Swan, reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, we've seen the Bay Area have a pretty wild weekend this past weekend. Uh, A lot of retail crime that was happening. These huge groups of people that were busting into luxury stores, jewelry stores. A lot of them were targeting cannabis, uh, marijuana dispensaries, and just trying to grab smash and go style as much as they could. And then, uh, you know, we saw police try their best to try to track some of them down. And very few arrests is what I saw over all of this. And uh, it's just becoming this other challenge for law enforcement. So, Rachel, what are we seeing with all of it? Yeah, so we actually saw something really similar last year in 2020. And that was definitely in the Bay Area. Can't speak for other parts of the country, but that was like right during, you know, the the end of May, early June, around the time of the uh, social unrest that we were seeing. Um, We did see some of these like caravans of cars traveling around the Bay Area and hitting up, gosh, car dealerships in San Leandro, Westfield Mall in San Francisco, uh, department stores, you know, so we've seen some of this before, but it just seems to have reached kind of a tipping point in the Bay Area. And it's just something that's really hard for law enforcement to quell for a variety of reasons. I mean, many are obvious, like the just the sheer number of people running into a location, like swarming a location at one time is just completely, it's more than police officers can handle. It's these crowds of people, they coordinate on social media, they move together, they move fast. It's hard for police to quickly develop what they call situational awareness and gather intelligence on these flash mobs. And yeah, it just gets out of control really quickly and then they flee very quickly. Yeah. Obviously we're focusing on the Bay area for this interview, but there's other things that were happening in Los Angeles just days after all of this. Um, you know, a lot of people point to this being a kind of a California problem that we'll get into in just a moment, but police have said that they do have intelligence, right? That these are multiple groups that are coordinating often on social media. They'll identify Mm -hmm. a place beforehand. And then if they see police presence, they can pivot really quickly and target somewhere else. So to your point, that's why it's really difficult to nail them all down. And then what happens after that is they resell this stuff. They'll go onto online marketplaces. Sometimes they'll just sell it in the streets. Sometimes it ends up overseas. So these are all the things that happen after they've been stolen. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing from law enforcement is that like part of what's enabling this whole trend is the fencing operations, you know, and a lot of that has now moved online. But traditionally, you know, in San Francisco, obviously, we've seen it even on particular intersect street intersections. You see people sell to flea markets, but there are whole distribution networks that these um, events are theoretically supplying. What's going on in California, there was something passed called Proposition 47. And a lot of people are pointing to this where it changed, you know, how people could be 
charged. In a lot of these cases, if uh, you're caught with something under $950, it's not a felony or anything. It's just a misdemeanor. So a lot of people say Mm -hmm. that emboldens these people to do it. And then on the prosecutor side, a lot of times maybe they don't even pursue some of this stuff. It's really hard to say. I mean, your description of Prop 47 days is exactly right. It set the threshold at $950 for most thefts. You know, I've looked at charging documents where it was someone, for instance, there's a case in San Francisco very recent of someone who stole like a hundred times from a Target store or something, just like went in, stole, went out, went out. And you look at the charges and it's all misdemeanors. (laughs) It's all misdemeanors because of the law. So it's interesting that you know, that's something that was passed by voters, but it's become extremely contentious over the years. It's hard to say to what degree this particular trend is triggered by Prop 47, because my understanding is that overall theft has actually gone down. But definitely having these kinds of flash mobs in the spotlight has brought the conversation about Prop 47 to the forefront. Rachel Swan, reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. With the passage of the Build Back Better Act, we, this Democratic Congress, are taking our place in the long and honorable heritage of our democracy, which with legislation that will be the pillar of health and financial security in America. Joining us now is David Siders, national political reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, David. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. The Democrats have not been having such a good time. The president's approval ratings are at an all-time low right now. And this is all happening even after the infrastructure bill has been passed. The House passed the spending bill, the Build Back Better plan. It's not translating over to voters. Even a lot of people that voted for President Biden just don't know what Democrats stand for. They're having this sort of identity crisis especially after the vote in Virginia where Terry McAuliffe lost to Glenn Youngkin. Everybody's trying to see what's going on, and the answer is nobody knows, really. So, uh, David, tell us some more about it. Yeah, I think you're, you know, how you called it an identity crisis is exactly right for Democrats. They're passing these major pieces of legislation, which poll incredibly well. The infrastructure plan, over 60% in most polls, and the same for most of the policies in the social spending plan, which which passed on Friday. And yet none of that is translating to Biden. And so... You know, when Democrats look for reasons why, there are some people who would say, you and I are the problem. I mean, this conversation we're having right here, talking about this instead of, say, the nitty gritty of what's exactly in those bills, those popular policies. But I think that's cheap. The bigger problem is a, a messaging problem of, of the parties. And it's just not resonating with, with voters, what they're doing. Yeah, we've talked about that messaging problem for a little bit now. And so what happened is that there's this group called Third Way, and they were doing some uh, focus groups, some polling, all that stuff to see what's going on. And one of the reps said that the weak national brand of Democrats have left them vulnerable. Obviously, that's not great news. And it kind of got me thinking, right? We're coming off of President Trump, who, you know, a lot of, he was very polarizing, but as uh, somebody who knows branding and really took over the party, he did an excellent job on that front. And for the Democrats, it was all about just getting away from Trump with no clear message on what's happening for the future. So it's kind of they stalled out in this sense. I mean, at least that's kind of what I was thinking. 
No, I think that's really, uh, really keen because you, you definitely saw Democrats up until Virginia thinking that, that Trump could still be resident. It was in the recall in California, but against you know a more palatable Republican in Glenn Youngkin, at least to moderates and people in the suburbs, that that messaging did not work. And so now you, you're right. The party was so wrapped up in being the anti-Trump party that I do think there's a void there that they're having a hard time filling. People that Third Way talks to you know, are having a hard time expressing what it is that Democrats are about. And that's that's not alone. I think that's what's showing up in this national polling when you see the difference between where Biden polls and where, where Democrats poll on the generic ballot, too. It's not just Biden, but where Democrats are polling and where their policies are. A lot of the stuff that's happening right now, they don't necessarily blame President Biden for it. But again, back to the point, they just can't tell what he's doing to fix it or just saying, hey, he's just not doing a good job of fixing it. Some of this frustration existed during the Trump presidency, too. You saw from Democrats where Trump won so many working class whites and kind of took this economic populism for Republicans in a way that Democrats looked at and said, geez, this guy's not his policies are not for working class Americans or for people who should respond to a populist message, at least one that's economics based, not not race based. And yet he did. And the real fear for Democrats is that that was not a singularly Trump thing, but that that was something that Republicans can use to their advantage against Democrats going forward. And I, I think there's there's real concern on the left that that might be the case. A lot of politics is always about looking to the future. What's next? Obviously, we're already at this point where we're talking about the midterm elections and the big signal is that it doesn't look very good for Democrats, but they still think there's plenty of time to turn things around, especially with the infrastructure bill that was passed. It's going to take a little while to get that money rolling and projects to actually get started, but they feel like now there's something concrete they can point to, something they can sell. And obviously the president and his allies are making those trips out there into America to sell it even more, basically, to let everybody know the positive effects of it. That's right. And I think the time to turn it around, let's understand the landscape they're looking at, which is that even you know, even optimistic Democrats, I think most people in the Democratic Party who look at this stuff think the House is gone. So really what they're talking about in terms of turning things around is maintaining the Senate and setting themselves up for you know either a Biden re-election or a Democratic president in 2024. But I don't think anybody thinks the House is it would be a miracle for, for Democrats to maintain that. And then my thought on the timing on a year is, yeah, it's a long time, but I just I'm real skeptical of these arguments that infrastructure is so new, that Build Back Better is so new, that after they have time to sink in, voters will give Democrats credit for it because we just haven't seen that happen with voters in Biden. It was months ago that they passed this historic legislation, the, the Relief Act on the pandemic, and none of that translated into electoral polling gains for Biden. So I'm skeptical that that messaging works and that you see people dancing in the streets next year talking about roads and bridges. It just seems like a long shot to me. David Siders, national political reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright. 
and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.